attention that Patrick is here, Brother Patrick Rowe. Patrick, where are you? Okay. Wonderful to have you here for this, I'm sure, very short visit before you'll be deployed. How soon before you leave? And you'll be off to Iraq. Well, it's, it's good to see you. We love you. We've been missing you, trying to take good care of your wife and children. But they are in the same hands that you will be in as you leave us to go to Iraq. So, great to see you. I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles, please, to uh, the book of Isaiah and chapter 46 to begin with. Hopefully we will be looking only at three passages of Scripture this morning. And I trust that you will see the interrelatedness of these three passages in terms of what I want to bring to your attention. I'd like you to imagine as a Christian that you're having your devotions and you've come to that amazing passage in Exodus where Moses' request was granted by God and he was able to get a small glimpse of his glory. And as God revealed himself, one of the striking and strange things he said was, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. As you know, this passage is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 when he also reminds us that it is not of him who runs or of him who wills, but of God who shows mercy. And then, perhaps a few moments later, your attention is drawn to some passage in the New Testament where you see the love of God for all of His creation and His genuine longing that none perish. And you just sort of shake your head and you scratch it and you think. You say, I know both of these things are true, but I'm not exactly sure how they harmonize. You say, that's a mystery to me. Or imagine, if you will, that you're sitting in a university class, a college class of world religions, and the professor says to you, you know, who do you think you are, you Christians? You're, you're such a minority in the world. There are millions of people who believe differently than you believe. How dare you claim to be the only people on the face of the earth that are really right about salvation? And he says, for me, I can't accept the God of the Bible because uh, there's so much evil in the world. There's so much calamity and disease and tragedy and hatred and prejudice and bias sorrow, sickness. The God of the Bible was real. He wouldn't allow that to happen. That is, if He had power. Maybe He's got the power, but He just doesn't have the heart. Maybe He's not really a good God. Or, says the professor, maybe He is a good God, but He really doesn't have the power to do anything about it. But one thing's for sure, class, He can't be both. He can't be both good and powerful and allow that kind of evil, this kind of evil, to prevail in the world, 
He says, that's why I can't be a biblical Christian. I can't believe in the God of the Bible. And you're somewhat shaken. You're not exactly sure how to answer the question. Especially if you're not a Christian. Well, I want to help us this morning with regard to how we should respond when we are confronted in the Word of God with truths that, that are truly beyond our full grasp. Truths that to us just seem like mysteries. Now, I know that the word mystery in the Bible often refers to a truth and an understanding that has not yet been unfolded or disclosed. And, of course, the gospel unfolds the mysteries of God's grace. But at the same time, there are those things that we'll always wonder about, we'll always say, I just don't know how to put these two things together. It is a mystery to me. It's an enigma. It's, it's a kind of puzzle. Now, the assumption is that you believe the Bible is the Word of God. And I especially want to speak to those of us who are Christians this morning with regard to how we should respond when we come to these mysteries, these enigmas, these puzzles that we can't figure out. But I do want to say a word also to those of you who are unbelievers as to how you should respond to the mysteries that you believe are found in the Word of God. Now, here's how I'd like to do it. I want to spend a few minutes just telling you what happens. I sort of hinted at it, but I want to go into more detail. Then I want to tell you what we must remember. Then I want to tell you what we must not do when we are confronted with one of these difficulties. And then I want to tell you what we must do. So that's all. What is it that happens? What do we need to remember? What is it that we should not do And what is it that we must do? Now, the first thing I want to say to you is that some of the mysteries which we find to be beyond us are beyond our full grasp simply because they have to do with the being of God Himself. He's infinite. That is, He's measureless. He's eternal. That is to say, He has never had a beginning. We shouldn't be surprised that there are mysteries concerning God. Because He is God. And we live in a universe in which everything that exists materially came into being. It had a beginning. Can your eyes look up on anything that did not have a beginning? Everything that we have seen with our eyes has had an origin. Everything has been caused. But there's one thing that was never caused. There's one reality that was never caused. It's God. God is the only uncaused reality. And sometimes God is spoken of as the uncaused cause. And I want to ask you this morning, what happens inside of your brain and in your mind when you try really, really hard to conceive of, to imagine, to understand, to grasp, to contemplate the fact that God 
never had a beginning. I'm asking you to think very specifically about that for a moment. And surely you have. What happens in your brain? What happens in your psyche? What happens in your soul when you realize that He has always existed? Can you fully grasp that? I know that we can understand the concept well enough and we can even talk about it and we can discuss it and so forth. And at some level we understand the concept that He is a being, He is a reality who never had a beginning. We can say it. I just said it. But how can that be? How can God have never come into being? How can someone have always existed? How can something never have been caused? Who created God? And of course, the answer is no one. But we struggle with thinking for any length of time about a person who never had a beginning. You, you can think and think, and it just, you, your mind reaches the place where it almost feels like it needs to explode. That's a mystery to us because we are finite. We are limited. And we have just one other slight problem. We are fallen. And our minds are darkened. But even if they weren't, we couldn't fully grasp what is infinite. How do you respond to those kinds of mysteries when you're confronted them in the Word of God. The same thing is true with regard to the Trinity. We sang a lot about the Trinity this morning. And I'm glad that we did. And we say that the doctrine of the Trinity is that there is one God who exists in three persons, each of which is distinct, and yet each of which is equal, not three different parts that somehow come together and make a whole, but three persons who are are one God. Can you grasp that? Mentally, does that, when you think about it and contemplate it, leave you with a completely satisfied sense of, I think I've got that. <laughs> you know, there are things that we come to grasp. We say, And it feels good when we grasp them. We say, I get it now. I understand that. We can only go so far with regard to the mystery of the Trinity. We can articulate it, and we must articulate it. And we can put it in a confession, and it must be in the confession. And we can talk about it to a point. But can we fully grasp and understand it? No. It, at the end of the day, becomes a mystery. And some of the mysteries that we are confronted with in the Word of God actually seem to be almost something other than a mystery, they seem to be contradictions. Things that God Himself has said. Things that God does. Things that God says about Himself. He says that He has chosen a people. It is a distinct number of people. He has set a peculiar love and affection upon them and determined their salvation. And he says that he desires that all would be saved. He has no 
pleasure in the death of the wicked. He says that there is a sense in which he genuinely desires the salvation of all men. And your brain says, wait a minute. Doesn't he have omnipotence? Can't he secure the salvation of all men? And your brain says, yes, he's omnipotent. Then why doesn't he do it if he really desires? I have to conclude in my little fallen brain, he surely doesn't really desire. We go astray because it seems to be a contradiction. It doesn't make sense to us. How can these two things God says about Himself both be true? And of course, the huge, the granddaddy, uh, apparent contradiction and underscore the word apparent. Listen to me carefully. There are no contradictions in the Word of God. Theologians call these tensions, these seeming paradoxes, these seeming contradictions, they call them antinomies. It's just a big word for anti-against law, namas, the laws of logic. These, these truths are contrary to the laws of logic. They can't both be true. There are no real antinomies. That's just a word. But there are real tensions And we have to be honest. How can God be absolutely, totally sovereign and man still be genuinely responsible for his sin? How can God decree everything and man be accountable before God for his sin? How can God be the cause of all things? And He is the cause of all things. There is nothing that God did not cause and yet not be the author of of sin. That's a tension. That's a difficult... Those are difficult questions. And I'm asking you this morning, how do you respond to that? What goes on in your soul when you're confronted with such things? And I haven't even talked about the kinds of things God does. He does things that, to our way of thinking, they don't seem right. When he destroys an entire city or an entire nation, including all of the women and all of the children. He says about himself, he is the God who creates light and darkness and he creates calamity. Isaiah 45, 7. He says that he is the God who brings about disaster. Amos 3, 6. How can that be? How can that be okay? How can that be right? I'm just giving you those as for instances. That's what, that's what happens. We are confronted in the Word of God with truths that are sometimes beyond our full grasp because they're rooted in the character and the nature of God who is infinitely glorious and transcendent and altogether different from us and beyond us. And we just say, wow, I can't even, I don't even feel like I'm beginning to get a complete grasp on I can't wrap my mind. And then other times we're confronted with truths that to us seem contradictory, but in reality they really aren't contradictory. That's what happens. Okay. I, I hope that you can 
relate to that and that you can say, I, I have some of those. I have some of those mysteries. The second question I want to raise is, what, what is it that we need to remember when we're confronted with these kinds of mysteries? And that's why I turned you to Isaiah. And I want you to notice first something about the being of God in chapter 46, and then something about the mind and the ways of God in chapter 55. Just notice verse 9, Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. There's no other God. I am God and there is none like me. Well, that means that He's different from us. Not only are there no gods like Him, there are no beings like Him, including us. And then he goes on to tell what he does. He declares the end from the beginning. God knows everything about history. That's why we can't be what some of you have heard about open theists, as if God doesn't really know. Well, he knows. He knows everything. In fact, that 10th verse goes on to tell us that he knows everything because he's planned everything. And that verse also tells us that he brings everything to pass in his providence. And he gives an illustration in verse 11 about what he does sometimes with other nations and how he calls a nation to punish his disobedient people. But I want you to realize, dear people, that God is different from us. He is the only God. And there is no one like Him. That's what we have to remember when we come to these mysteries and these enigmas and these puzzles and these tensions, and these apparent contradictions, which are not really contradictions. They're only apparent because we got a problem right here. Right here. And we get a problem right here. We don't want to believe them. And we bring our fallen understanding to the Word of God. Now, that's all I want to say about Isaiah 46. Just remember, the being of God is altogether different from us we're made in His image. I don't want you to get hung up on that. But there is an otherness about God that we do not share. Now, quickly go to chapter 55. And this is familiar to I love this passage. And I just want you to be reminded about um, the, uh, the majesty, the transcendence. That's the beyondness. That's what transcendent means. It just means above and beyond. Way beyond us. Look at look what God says about himself in verse 9, 55, 9. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, which is another way of him saying my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. We're different. We're on two different levels. Um, how far apart are those levels, God? Are they pretty close? Look at verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, we saw the being of God in chapter 46, and I just want to say this, that God does what He does because He thinks what He thinks, and He thinks what He thinks because He is who He is. 
That's not really that complex. May I just say that again? It's all, bo- it's all bound up together. God does what he does because he thinks what he thinks, and he thinks what he thinks because he is who he is. And he's the only God, and, he, and he's so far above us in his thinking and in his ways. That's a pretty good starting place, isn't it, when you've run into um, a mystery. How can this be? And I'm saying to you, this is what we need to remember. This is what we need to think about when those times come. Now, he uses the heavens as an illustration. And astronomy is something that I think amazes all of us, even when we just learn a little bit about it. I was reading again in, in, a, in a practical book where some of these astronomical things were addressed. And the author, instead of asking us to think about the speed of light, did something different. Because it's pretty hard to relate to 186,000 miles a second. Just, that's pretty hard to conceive of. I, all I can say is, how far could you get in a minute at 186,000 miles a second? How far could you get in an hour? How far could you get in a day? How far could you get in a year? How far could you get in a thousand years? How about a million years? How about a billion years? And that's, that's a way that, and that's, I'm sure, the best way. But to conceive of it a little differently, this author said, let's just think about jets. They travel at 500 miles an hour plus a little bit, but just let's round it off at 500 miles an hour. Um, it would take us three weeks if we got in a jet that never had to refuel and flew 24 hours straight Non-stop, it would take us three days, uh, excuse me, three weeks to get to the moon. Three weeks. Now, if we traveled that same speed to the sun, it would take us 21 years. If we took the furthest planet from uh, the Earth in terms of our own little um, solar system, which is Pluto, it would take us 900 years to get to Pluto. Pluto is just out the back door. It's really the threshold. It's not even the It's kind of like the other side of the door. That's, that's the furthest planet in our solar system. But what about the nearest star? In, we happen to be in the, gal- the Milky Way galaxy. How about the nearest star in the Milky Way galaxy? Well, it's called Proxima Centauri. Traveling at 500 miles an hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, it would take us six million years at 500 miles an hour. Six million years. Now let's just change it. Let's say that we could get to the sun in an hour. Some of you know that the sun is about 93 or 94 million miles away. So let's take that as a speed, miles per hour. How about traveling at 93 million miles an hour? There is a galaxy beyond our galaxy called Andromeda. And traveling at 93 million miles an hour, we can get to that galaxy in 4 trillion 200 million years. I'm not talking about 500 miles an hour, people. I'm talking about 93 million miles an hour. That's just to another galaxy. And now the astronomers tell us that there may be 100 million 
other galaxies. We have no idea how many galaxies there are beyond the ones that we can see. Now, if you just take Isaiah's God's picture and think of it in terms of vertical for now, because it's easier to think that way. And let's say this is the earth. And God says, you're down here on earth, and this is, this is your level of thinking. And I just want you to understand that my level of thinking is a little bit higher than yours. How high, God, as high as the heavens are above the earth? And when we come to a mystery, we're going to say, I ought to be able to understand that. And if I can't understand that, I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to worship a God that I don't understand. If it doesn't make sense to me, I'm not going to believe it. Because my brain is the be and end all of everything. That's how intelligent I am. I mean, could you imagine the arrogance of the human mind to say, if I can't understand the God of the Bible, I'm not going to worship Him. If it doesn't make sense to me, it doesn't make sense. Can't be right. So what do we need to remember when we read in our Bibles that God has ordained everything from beginning to end, and yet we are responsible for our own sinful acts and decisions and words and thoughts. How are we going to respond when our Bibles teach us that God has chosen a people which man cannot number, and they will be saved? He has determined to save them. And yet he represents himself as desiring the salvation of all men, genuinely, not with his tongue in his cheek. And you look at A, and you look at B, and your little fallen mind and your little sinful heart says, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hold these two things. Uh uh-uh. uh. My mind refuses to do that. That doesn't meet the satisfaction of my sense of logic. I'm going to choose one or the other. I don't believe God sincerely desires the salvation of all men. The assumption is, when we do that, uh, God, excuse me, excuse me, I know that you said your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, but I got up there. And I got up there. In fact, I not only got even with you, if you will pardon me, God, I got above you and I looked down on this this thing that you said and uh, it's not good. It's not right. You're wrong. You shouldn't have said that. I don't accept that. And that's what we do. So, when you come, dear people of God, you who believe the Bible is the Word of God, supernaturally inspired, inerrant, no errors, absolutely authoritative. And you come to a mystery, and I'm jumping now to my fourth point because I want to say it a couple of times. I'm going to tell you what you got to do. 
Listen carefully. I shared this with Pastor Rich this morning. It's real simple. And if you write anything down, this might be worth writing down. It's real short. Listen. When you come to that, bow your head, bend your knee, cover your mouth, embrace the truth, worship your God, and wait for understanding. Did you say that again, Pastor Ted? Sure. When you come to a mystery in the Word of God that's bigger than your little finite fallen brain, but you see it, it's there. Bow your head, bend your knee, cover your mouth, embrace the truth, Worship your God and wait for understanding. So when I come to my fourth point, it's going to sound real familiar. That's what we need to remember. Thirdly, what is it that we must not do when we come to these mysteries? I think you know already, but I'm just going to restate it. We can't take the throne of God. We don't get on His throne. We don't say, God, move over a minute. Let's move over. We must not sit in judgment on God. Well, if I was God, I sure wouldn't allow that tsunami to come if I had omnipotence. I wouldn't have allowed the Twin Towers to go down. No, you wouldn't have. Because you wouldn't have an infinitely glorious, wise, and moral reason for doing it. Because you're too, you're too finite. You're too fallen to be able to do that. Uh, Mr. Professor, you're right. Evil exists. I'm right. God is good. God is powerful. You just forgot one thing. He's so infinitely wise that He can not only allow, but ordain evil in a way that is right and good. You just made one little mistake, Professor. You made yourself equal to God in your intelligence. And you sat in judgment on Him. And we must not do this. We must not put God on trial, because He isn't on trial, We must not put God in the dock, that is, that place where the defendant is being interrogated. We must not call God to account. We must not make my understanding the criteria of what I will believe. I will not accept as truth anything that doesn't make sense to me. That's what we must not do. And I just want to remind you that, you see, dear people, if we could understand God fully, comprehensively. You know what? We wouldn't have a God. (laughs) We wouldn't have a God. And that's why this God who doesn't really know the future because He hasn't planned the future and He wants to secure man's free will is not worthy of worship because He can't really help you. But a sovereign, majestic, Transcendent, perfect, omniscient, omnipotent, 
gracious God can help us. And so I come to my last point then again. See what we see what happens. We see what we must remember. We see what we must not do. What must we do? I'm just going to say it to you again because I want I want you to remember this. When you come to the mystery, bow your head, bend your knee, cover your mouth. Embrace the truth, worship your God, and wait for understanding. I told you there would be three passages, and so I turn you to the last one now. And you won't be surprised. Some of you could perhaps anticipate it. I want you to go with me to Job chapter 40. You all know the terrible calamity and trial that Job went through um, by God's permission. And yes, Satan was the agent, but God was the cause. Job chapter 40. And if I could just smuggle this in for a second, because it's not my purpose. You put a finger in in chapter 40, but for just a second, would you notice um, the very last chapter? I just want you to notice in 42, it says that, um, verse 10, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, and all had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him. Now listen, I know I quoted this just several weeks ago. They comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. That's not a good translation. That's bad theology. You saying God had something to do with those tornadoes? I won't worship a God like that. Well, you'll go to hell. You'll go to hell and you'll find out who the true and the living God is. That's not my point, though. That's not what I'm trying to stress. I just wanted to smuggle that in. Go to chapter 40. And you remember that after these so-called wise men, these so-called comforters all philosophized and theologized, God finally said, I'd like you all just to be quiet for a while because I have some questions to ask Job. And he asked Job something like 176 questions. And he gives him just just a brief opportunity. Job, did, you, did I see your hand up? Did you want to say something? And in chapter 40, Job says something. Verse 3, then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. There's a good place to start. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Bow your head, bend your knee, put your hand on your mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will... Proceed no further. God, I can't talk. I can't talk. Now, God says, okay, then just a few more questions, all designed to take the starch out of his collar and the wind out of his sails. And when God is finally done, then in chapter 42, Job answers the Lord and says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
there's, there's one of the great truths of the Reformed faith. That the God of the Bible is a God who accomplishes all of his purposes. They cannot be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That was the question you asked me, God. It was me. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And this is what we are prone to do, especially when we get in theological debate. And this is especially something that seminarians are famous for. I don't see that among our pastoral students. But they love to stay up till the wee hours of the morning, arguing as if from a position of absolute knowledge about what they're sure the Bible means with regard to some of its mysteries. And what they need is to put their hands on their mouths and say, you know what, guys? We're talking about stuff that's way, way, way over our heads. We need to worship. We need to bow our heads and bend our knees and cover our mouths. And so Job goes on and says in verse 4, Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. That's what God said to him. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job, you've got some self-esteem problems. No, I had some self-esteem problems. I'm, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. And that's what we have to do, dear people, when we come to these mysteries these apparent contradictions. I don't even dare to say that with the children here without quickly saying there are no contradictions in the Bible. There are no contradictions in the mind of God. They just seem like it to our fallen, little, finite, pea-shooting brains. When we come to those tensions, how can this be true and this be true? That's a tension. Yeah, it is a tension. Because God is infinite and you're finite. God is the creator. You're the created. God is holy and you're sinful. When we come to those, what we need to do then is those things. Bow our heads, bend our knees, cover our mouths, embrace the truth, worship our God, and wait for understanding. And so I say to you, dear people, the God of the Bible alone is worthy to be trusted, worthy to be worshipped, worthy to be served, worthy to be obeyed, worthy to be proclaimed. And He is knowable. That's what's amazing. A God this great can be known in some real and saving way? Yes! He has chosen to make Himself knowable. In fact, He gave us a great start when He created us with the knowledge that He exists. It's just fallen. We can know Him through His Word, by His Spirit. And we can approach this God and know that He's pleased with us and that there's no condemnation and that we're acceptable. Not only acceptable, that we're delightful to Him if we come through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when we do, then we will sing with Wesley. Listen to these words. Shall foolish, weak, short-sighted man beyond archangels go? (laughs) The great, almighty God explain or to perfection no? His attributes divinely soar above the creature's sight and prostrate. Seraphim adore the glorious infinite. Jehovah's everlasting days, they cannot numbered be incomprehensible. The space of thine immensity, thy wisdom's depths by reason's line in vain we try to sound or stretch our laboring thoughts to assign omnipotence abound. The brightness of thy glory leaves description far below. Nor man nor angel's heart conceives how deep thy mercies flow. Thy love is most unsearchable and dazzles all above. They gaze but cannot count or tell the treasures of thy love. That's what Charles Wesley said in only two verses of another song. This is what Watts said, can creatures to perfection find the eternal, uncreated mind? Or can the largest stretch of thought measure and search his nature out? Tis high as heaven, tis deep as hell, and what can mortals know or tell? His glory spreads beyond the sky and all the shining worlds on high. And so we should bow. And just this final, very brief word to you who are unbelievers. I mean, we struggle as Christians with these mysteries. We're we're admitting it, okay? We're not saying there aren't any mysteries in the Bible. We're not saying there aren't things that would appear to be contradictory. We're admitting that. They're just not. But you see, we have a solution to our problems. And the solution that brings real peace to our hearts and souls is God Himself. (laughs) He's he's so great and He's so glorious that all these things are possible. They're just impossible to our fallen understanding. They can become possibly solved for you. But you must get off your throne. And you must quit trying to usurp the throne of God. And you need to admit that you don't believe the Bible is the Word of God because you choose not to believe the Bible is the Word of God. That's really the bottom line. And you don't want to believe in the God of the Bible because you choose not to believe in the God of the Bible and therefore you try to find some good pretenses for why you wouldn't want to believe in a God like that. But the real reason is why you don't want to believe in God like that is because you don't want a God, period. You want to be God. And you need to be honest. You just need to quit lying. Just quit lying. You just quit lying. You're lying to yourself and you're lying to us. Most of the time you're lying to other people. But you're also lying to yourself. Quit lying. These enigmas, can, these puzzles, these mysteries can be used by your sinful heart and the devil to keep you from Christ. You see, because you think you've got a reason not to come to Christ. You think you have a reason not to repent and trust in Jesus. Oh, the Bible's got problems in it and contradictions in it. And after all, if, if the God of the Bible is what He says He is and does what He said He did and does, I wouldn't worship a God like that. And 
your sinful nature says, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Good thought, man, good thought. But if you listen real, real deep, you'll hear something else say, you know you don't want, you don't want God to control your life because you are in love with yourself and you are in love with sin. That's why you think you have a problem with God. You've got a problem with you. And I just want to plead with you who are unconverted to bow down to this God and, and, then, and then come to Him through His Son. I said a minute ago that He's knowable and He's approachable because of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you will humble yourself and come to Him and just say, God, I have hated you. I have blasphemed you. I have said in judgment of you. I have put you on trial. I've said horrible things about you. I can't believe I'm not screaming in hell right now. But I'm not. And I'm coming to you and I'm asking you to have mercy upon me through Jesus Christ who lived and died for sinners. I come to you in His name. No one can come to the Father but by the Son. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Father, God, my Creator, my Judge, I come to you for forgiveness. And I take this fallen brain of mine and I submit it to the perfect, infallible, authoritative revelation of God. And from this point on, I want all of my thinking to be guided by this. That's what the old theologians meant when they said, think God's thoughts after Him. He's first. He reveals. I embrace And my mind thinks after God's revelation. But you've got to do that through Jesus Christ. Because there's no other way to come to God without finding Him to be a consuming fire. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that there are mysteries in the Bible. We thank You for that. Because there's so much sin in us that if we didn't have some things to puzzle us, we would trust ourselves. We would trust our minds. Help us to remember that you are God and there is no other and that your thoughts and your ways are not our thoughts and our ways and they are as high as the heavens are above us. And may we remember that so that we will bow our heads and bend our knees and cover our mouths and embrace the truth and worship You and wait until we know as we are known. God, be gracious to the unconverted. May today be the day that they throw down the weapons of their warfare and bow their minds to You, the true and living God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing How Great Is Our God. How great
Again, how great, how great is our God. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.